0: Hello everyone. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Linklaters Asia Bite Size Antitrust Podcast Series 2023. I'm Marcus from Linklaters Asia Antitrust Team, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Nuranjan, a corporate partner in our Singapore office, and who happens to be the global co-head of technology sector. Merger control and foreign investment rules have become more and more a key upfront consideration in deal planning. The number of jurisdictions with active merger control or foreign investment regimes has increased significantly over the past few years. In this podcast, we will navigate with Nuranjan on how those rules could potentially impact a transaction and aim to give you some practical tips to evaluate and mitigate those risks. So, Nuranjan, to kick this off, I'm interested to hear your view on what do you see as the key issues that we should consider from the outset of a transaction.
1: Thanks for the introduction, Marcus, and thank you for having me on. Uh, It's really important to consider from the outset whether any merger filing or foreign investment filing would be needed. That's critical. And that's why we go to Marcus's team for a multi-jurisdictional assessment at the earliest possible stage. Obviously, regulatory filings will have a pretty significant impact on the transaction documents and also deal timing so when it comes to foreign investment or merger filings most jurisdictions require some kind of mandatory pre-closing approval to be obtained prior to closing Uh, and this means that the parties can't close the deal until clearance is obtained therefore you just have to consider the timing required and reflect that in the timetable or the roadmap for the transaction as well as the effects of the filing on structuring and the transaction perimeter It, it gets kind of tricky in an auction or a two horse sale process. But one question that we would already have to work through with the client is, how likely would the Competition Authority raise concerns over the transaction? And is this a technical filing or a transaction with substantive issues?
0: Yeah, that's a a very good point, Ranjan. As in fact, process and substance really do need to go side by side. So for merger control filings, the timing of approvals varies very much depending on the substantive analysis of a specific transaction if a transaction for example involves multiple jurisdictions different or antitrust authorities may have different considerations uh, when assessing whether to clear a deal or not so let's just take the acquisition of activision blizzard by microsoft a very recent example Uh, it had to be notified in more than 40 jurisdictions Now, it recently had its blessing from one of the last few jurisdictions on the list, the UK Competition and Markets Authority. But that's nearly two years since the original announcement of the deal. And of course, the UK CMA had originally blocked that deal and only granted its approval after Microsoft had revised the deal structure. And the UK is actually an interesting example to flag a little bit more because its recent merger intervention rate what we call the merge intervention rate, is a good indication of how merge control can be a roadblock. So, for example, since January 2019, about 60% of UK competition cases that have gone into an in-depth Phase 2 review did not ultimately survive. Either they were blocked or they were abandoned by the parties. So, Namajan, as you have mentioned earlier, apart from the timing... I do agree with you that one other key issue is knowing your substantive risk earlier in the transaction. That will very much allow the parties to build into the transaction documents the appropriate allocation of risk. Yes, 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 indeed. And this depends very much on which side of the table you're
1: negotiating. In an ideal world, you would think parties would be aligned and have a common interest. But more often than not, the risk allocation is is a contested and, and fraught discussion. Um, put simply, if you're a seller, you just want to exit quickly and smoothly. And so deal certainty is absolutely critical. So that's why you'll often see as a starting point from a sell side is a blanket hell or high water clause, especially if you anticipate a difficult path ahead from a, a regulatory perspective. Um, a hell or high water clause basically imposes an obligation on the purchaser to do everything possible to obtain the regulatory approval, even if it means selling assets or agreeing to behavioural undertakings or selling your firstborn born child. Um, alternatively, sellers sometimes ask for a break fee from the purchaser. And we've seen those fees range from single digits uh, to more sizeable sums. For example, in the Adobe Figma merger, there was a $1 billion break fee faced by Adobe, which was about five percent of the transaction value for the microsoft activision blizzard deal the break fee has gone up to 3.5 billion as the closing date has been extended and that's about five percent of the 69 billion dollar deal so the situation is definitely trickier for the purchaser as it's mostly their obligation to secure a filing and if an issue arises to negotiate and agree on remedies that authorities potentially impose on them So that means a purchaser needs the time and flexibility to engage with the regulator to find an appropriate solution speaking of remedies marcus is there any particular strategies that we should bear in
0: mind yeah sure i mean i never really want to be a debbie downer but thinking of the worst case or at least what would a reasonable regulator potentially having an issue with is a topic you don't want to be discussing with the client after signing So, for more difficult deals, certainly we encourage parties to start thinking through defence strategies and even potentially planning their remedies early on, so they are ready to have that substantive conversation with the authorities during the heat of a live review. Traditionally, and it's been that way for many years, regulators are sceptical towards what are called behavioural remedies, um, as those remedies typically require continuous monitoring, and may not sufficiently address competition concerns once and for all in a particular market. Whereas structural remedies, on the other hand, actually can be a deal breaker if the divested business or proposed to be divested business or assets forms an important part of that transaction. Structural remedies also can be a challenge to implement. For example, in a very concentrated market with high barriers to entry, looking for a buyer to buy the divested business may not be a straightforward task. And I think all of those issues are ones that require planning uh, from the outset. So Marcus, we always
1: come to you for these sorts of issues. You're looking at merger filing issues um, across Asia and you've got experience around the world. Uh, Based on your observations, what are the the trends in Asia? Uh, And I'm curious, are the authorities more open to behavioral remedies compared to, say, more developed jurisdictions such as Europe or? Or the US.
0: Yeah, so as always, with some of these issues, there's not going to be a simple answer and one size, doesn't fit all across the region. So if we just take a look at a relatively newer regime in Asia, uh, for example, Thailand, there have been in the past couple of years, a number of high profile mergers where authorities have actually accepted behavioral remedies or behavioral commitments of the type I said, typically are not seen in, in Europe or the US. For example, pricing restrictions, supply commitments, and hold separate orders. And Thailand has never asked any merging party to actually divest any entities or assets. In contrast, very recently, the chairperson of the Philippine Competition Commission commented that behavioural remedies were not ideal for them in the Philippines based on their experience of the Grab Uber merger back in 2019. I think the good news is that actually remedy cases or conditional clearances are still much less common in Asia, and remedies are rarely sought outside of China, where actually the intervention rate is quite limited compared to the US and Europe. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that we know
1: our clients sometimes struggle with is where to make the, the filings. And certainly one of the odd things I find as an MA practitioner is that sometimes merger filings may also need to be made in jurisdictions where the transaction really doesn't have any nexus at all. Uh, It's difficult to make the connection sometimes. Technical merger filings can be triggered in some jurisdictions solely by the local revenue generated by the controlling parents, even if the target doesn't have any presence there.
0: Yeah, exactly, And, and that's sometimes our difficulty because as strange as it may sound, merger filings in Europe and China can actually be relatively easily triggered for example, by establishing a joint venture in Indonesia, where two or more parent companies generate significant revenues in, in Europe and China. So even if there's no chance of competition being impacted overseas, those technical filings are triggered. And unfortunately, even for those kind of filings, parties may still be exposed to fines for failing to notify those technical transactions. So in practice, anti authorities may have Uh, less interest to pursue failure to file or gun-jumping cases when there isn't any local impact. So this is, for example, reflected usually in the level of fines that can be imposed by a regulator. If you take China, for technical filings, the SAMR would only be able to impose a maximum fine of 5 million RMB for failure to notify a transaction, as opposed to uh, up to 10% of worldwide turnover in cases where there is actually a competition concern. Right,
1: and Marcus, you mentioned gun
0: jumping. Um, I think
1: it's worth mentioning that, in addition to a failure to notify, where you're taking steps to integrate the business before the antitrust clearances, that may also give rise to this so-called gun jumping risk. Uh, Illegal integrating steps uh, including things like the parties coordinating their sales and marketing activities and sharing competitively sensitive information about their business before closing might um, raise these sorts of risks. And it's really interesting because share purchase agreements typically contain precedent type language on the buyer's access to the targets, books and records and systems. But, But it is really important to stress that until closing, parties must remain independent competitors and be subject to the general antitrust rules that prohibit collusive conduct.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think so far our discussion has been focusing on merger control. So if I may, I'd like to turn to foreign investment issues. Now, we used to be concerned about United States CFIUS, Australia Foreign Investment Review Board, and maybe a couple of other EU jurisdictions. But now in the EU, almost all member states have a cross-sector foreign investment rules. Right, right. But, but Marcus, compared to
1: the EU, uh, Asian jurisdictions are still broadly having a foreign investor-friendly policy. Um, that said, we've also seen countries like Japan and South Korea increasingly scrutinize foreign investment in certain key tech industries.
0: Yeah, that's right, Nimanjan. And I think in addition to that, compared to merger control, Foreign investment filings are generally less predictable in terms of timing, in terms of outcome, and also generally the review process. Foreign investment rules tend to capture transactions at a, at a much lower threshold. So, for example, an acquisition of a passive non-controlling interest that falls outside the merger control rules may still require a foreign investment filing. And, of course, foreign investment rules are intentionally vague. They often leave the regulators with much broader discretion to interpret their own jurisdiction. Goodness, it it does seem like a black art to navigate
1: through these foreign investment regulations. Marcus, is there any way foreign investors can have a quick sense of the level of risks involved in their transaction?
0: So foreign investment risks generally vary, I'm afraid, depending on the acquirer identity, where they are from, and also the target uh, sectors. So, Uh, let's turn to the UK again. Since the National Security Investment Act entered into force in 2022, the UK government has made 15 final orders, so in-depth decisions. Out of those 15, five were blocked. And of those five blocked deals, four deals involved Chinese investors, and one related to an upstream Russian shareholder. Now, as for the other nine, Um, almost half of those involve Chinese investors. But I should say for completeness, those other deals also included UK and American investors. So the law is meant to be nationality neutral. In terms of sectors, this, again, depends on the jurisdiction as what a particular government would see as sensitive. But of course, you have got common sensitive sectors in many places such as defence, military suppliers, the healthcare supply chain, energy, telco, critical infrastructure and core technologies. So let's take China's Costco Hamburg port deal as an example. Uh, that deal was announced in 2021 and it has been subject to intensive uh, political debates in Germany right through until June earlier this year. Uh, the deal was eventually cleared on the condition that Costco's interest would be below 25%. Um, That was regarded as a controversial decision. Of course, Costco is state-owned entity, and port terminals fall within the scope of critical infrastructure in Germany. So, Naranjan, before we wrap up, is there anything parties can do in terms of uh, strategies to be able to mitigate any potential risks that we've discussed?
1: yeah yeah good question i mean i guess similar to merger control filings most foreign investment approvals are also suspensory in nature so that means you can't close the deal without approval so one of the the key risk mitigation tactics is to consider whether you need a regulatory condition precedent um, so that you have to get approval before you close this often depends on whether the foreign investment filing is mandatory or voluntary in nature So that's the first point. The second point also is to consider the risk allocation that we discussed earlier and should it cover foreign investment remedies. Sellers will often say that the risk has arisen because of you, buyer, so you should bear the full risk of getting the approval. Um, Also, given that the regulator will likely request significant information relating to the target's business, a, a buyer should ensure that there are cooperation obligations that are sufficiently wide to cover both the sellers and the targets' cooperation in government engagement. This is particularly important when you have a break fee hanging over your head. So, sellers may want some visibility over what's said to the regulator. Um, and I think you can engage with sellers on, on that basis. But of course, that needs to be balanced with confidentiality protections.
0: Well, thanks, Anjan for your time today and uh, helping us walk through various merger control and foreign investment issues in the MA context course if any of our listeners have got any question then please do feel free to reach out to us and we'll be happy to discuss any of those issues further. In our next episode we'll be having Felicity McMahon from Allens in Australia and Gilly Hutchison head of our ESG regional development team in Asia to explore competition issues and sustainability. So for now thanks for listening and goodbye.